You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we are grateful as your people to be gathered together on the first day of the week to declare the good news that Jesus has conquered death. I pray for my brothers and sisters as we have gathered this morning. There are so many things that could distract us from your word this morning, from worshiping you, from fellowshipping with others. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this moment, that you would work in each of our hearts, that you would push us toward each other in meaningful fellowship, that you would give us ears to hear the word of God this morning, that this would be a profound time of joyful worship for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your copy of the scriptures if you haven't already and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll jump around a little bit this morning as we do an overview of Matthew's Gospel. <clears throat> if someone were to ask you the simple question, Who are you? How would you answer? There are many ways you could answer. For me, I could say, I'm Karen's husband. I'm Meredith, Jonathan, Gideon, and Samantha's daddy. I am the son of David and Sandy Redberg. I'm one of the pastors of Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. I could even say, I'm a miserable fan of the Minnesota Vikings. 
something I might be reminded of later today. Of course, more importantly, I could identify myself as a follower of Jesus Christ, a child of God, a Christian. So friend, who are you? It's a simple question, yet when that question is asked about God's son, it becomes the most important question in the universe. This morning, we begin a study through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. But before we dive into the sermon itself, I think it will be helpful for us to look at Matthew's Gospel as a whole. So this morning, we will do a kind of introduction so that we understand the fuller context of this great sermon preached by Jesus himself. One of the main purposes of Matthew's gospel is to establish the identity of Jesus. He wants us to know who Jesus is. He he wants us to have a clear understanding of Jesus' identity so we will listen to what he says and ultimately believe in him. Now, you might be wondering, Jason, how do you know that Matthew is aiming to tell us who Jesus is? Well, look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Or you could say it this way, the book of the story of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate things, and it's, it's good to be reminded that the question of who Jesus is 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 really not that difficult to answer. We have historically accurate, divinely inspired accounts that clearly establish the identity of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew is intended by God to tell the true story of his son, Jesus. And as a blow to our our natural skepticism, God gave us three other Gospel records, Mark, Luke, and John, all unique in their own way yet totally cohesive in what they present about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting to note that throughout Matthew's gospel, we find people asking the same question that we're asking this morning. In fact, I want you to flip to some of these references so that you see this with your own eyes. Look first at Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. As Jesus miraculously calms a violent storm by merely speaking, Matthew records this response in verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? In other words, those who have just witnessed Jesus' power displayed cannot help but ask, who is this guy? Now flip over to chapter 21. Look with me at verse 10. This is the account of Jesus' triumphal entry. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Who is this man who's being celebrated and lauded as he enters Jerusalem? Two more quickly. The the first is when Jesus appears before Caiaphas in the council in Matthew 26, verse 63. Here's what he's asked. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Who are you? 
Finally, Pontius Pilate in chapter 27, verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? Who is Jesus? So we know this is not a new question. It was being asked when Jesus was walking amongst men during his earthly ministry. But it's also a question people throughout the ages have asked. It's a question everyone must answer. In fact, consider this well-known excerpt from C.S. Lewis's classic Mere Christianity. Lewis writes this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, I agree with Lewis. When the question is asked, who is Jesus? You must let Jesus answer for himself. In the strictest sense of the term, don't be a fool. Don't ignore what Jesus has revealed about himself. He is who he claims to be. And when you and I see Jesus for who he really is, there is only one appropriate response. As Lewis said, fall at his feet. Call him Lord and God. So if you're here this morning and you have sincere questions or you would be classified more as a skeptic, my hope is that your eyes will be open to see with clarity who Jesus really is so that you will fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let's look how Matthew establishes the identity of Jesus, and I want to direct your attention to three ways, and you know there are many, many more. Let me show you three ways in which the Gospel of Matthew answers our chief question this morning, who is Jesus? First, Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the promised one. Notice again the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How is Jesus identified immediately, or how does Matthew begin the story? He does it by pointing us back. When we see the names David and Abraham, we are immediately taken back 
Jesus is somehow tied to the major characters of the Old Testament. And apparently, Matthew believed this connection was fundamental to understanding who Jesus really was. Matthew's gospel seems very concerned with showing us how Jesus connects to the Old Testament. There is this undeniable emphasis throughout Matthew's gospel on fulfilled prophecy. You heard it in the scripture reading before. But let me remind you again, chapter 1, verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This Old Testament reference to Old Testament prophecy, Matthew's showing us how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, but this isn't an isolated example. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, actually contains 61 Old Testament quotations. That's compared to 31 in Mark, 26 in Luke, and only 16 in John. So much of what Jesus does was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, and Matthew labors this point to show us this connection. As you've already seen, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus is mentioned. And then if you just flip through, chapter 2, verse 15, a reference to Israel's flight from Egypt. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, a reference to the slaughter of the innocents. Chapter 2, verse 23, a reference to Jesus living in Nazareth. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Jesus' ministry in Galilee is referred to. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Jesus' healings are highlighted. Chapter 13, verse 14, the people's lack of understanding. Chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus using parables to teach. Chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, Jesus riding a donkey. Matthew explicitly connects these things to Old Testament prophecy. Friends, Matthew is telling us who Jesus is by showing us over and over again that everything that was prophesied about the coming Messiah was fulfilled by Jesus. And this is no sleight of hand or trickery. These are actual historical events. Jesus is the prophesied and promised one. There is no doubt. One commentator explains Running throughout this gospel is the thought that God is working his purposes out and that one way in which that purpose is to be discerned is the manner in which what God has inspired his prophets to say can be seen to have been fulfilled in the life and teaching of Jesus. The idea that what God was promising in the Old Testament scriptures is fulfilled in Jesus and his teaching. This runs throughout the gospel. Friends, this is why Pastor Mark Dever has a book on the message of the Old Testament, and it's called Promises Made. And then a companion volume on the New Testament, and that's called Promises Kept. The promised Messiah of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate proof that God keeps his promises. 
Remember the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see, brothers and sisters, when we consider the promises of God and then we behold the person and work of Jesus Christ, our only response is to declare, this is true, right? That's what amen means. So to the question, who is Jesus? Matthew would respond, he is the promised one. He is the promised one. And then really we expand on this in our second point. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the promised one. And now second, Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king. When Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, he is making reference to God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So take your Bible and flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Seven. I want you to see, I want you to see this in the text. Look at verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's a lot that we could say there, but let me just bring out, let me bring out two, uh, two points of emphasis here. Jesus is called the son of David nine times in Matthew's gospel. You say, well, well why does he do that? He's connecting dots for us again. Let me give you these, these two points of emphasis first. Matthew is doing this because Jesus is the promised Davidic heir. He is the king who will establish an everlasting kingdom. God has kept his word and fulfilled his covenant. Jesus is the promised king. Now think about this. As the gospel of Matthew unfolds, expectations grow. If if you're familiar with the story. Expectations grow as the new king is slowly revealed. Promises made to Adam, Abraham, David, and Isaiah are brought to fulfillment through this Davidic king. But shock and dismay are also things that fill the moment. Why? Because the king that was prophesied to lead the people of God into the kingdom of God Well, he dies. In fact, Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected. He was violently put to death. So the people of God would be tempted to doubt that Jesus was the true king. 
They would be tempted to doubt that he was the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. So again, Matthew's gospel is connecting all the dots for doubters. Second, not only does Matthew establish that Jesus is the true king, but he explains the nature of his kingdom. Jesus explains that his kingdom will will not be realized by means of a large army. The means will be more like a seed planted in the ground, Matthew chapter 13. It's like leaven placed in bread rather than the sudden appearance of high walls and a throne. The kingdom is compared to a mustard seed or a a net thrown into the sea or a merchant in search of fine pearls. In one sense, the good news of the kingdom is what the Jews were expecting. It fulfilled the promises that their enemies would be vanquished. The temple would be rebuilt and they would occupy their land. But but all these things happened in a way that was very different than what they expected. They expected a kingdom achieved with a warrior on a white horse. What they saw was a man from Nazareth who had no place to lay his head. He rode into Jerusalem, not on a stallion, but on a donkey. Even more in Jerusalem, he did not sit on his throne, but he marched to Golgotha with a tree on his back. I think it's accurate for us to say that the Jewish people didn't get the king they wanted, but they certainly got the king they needed. Now, I think this same dynamic is true for us at times. I think we all struggle in some way with the temptation to remake Jesus into the Savior we want him to be. But this only happens when we forget what our greatest problem is. To illustrate, isn't this what underlies the prosperity gospel? If we believe our deepest and most profound need is better health and increased wealth, then we will remake Jesus and refashion his gospel until his greatest desire is for our earthly comfort and his gospel is the good news of earthly prosperity. Now, friend, you may face a temptation that is very different. Your refashion Jesus and redefined gospel might be dictated by your politics or by something else. I don't know. But here's the good news. Jesus isn't who you want him to be. But he is absolutely who you need him to be. He is the true and perfect king who willingly sacrificed himself for the eternal good of his people and then he rose from the dead in victory. His everlasting kingdom has been inaugurated and will soon be consummated. Oh, friends, as the famous preacher S.M. Lockridge said about the risen Christ, that's my king 
Do you know him? Do you know him? As a church, our greatest desire is that everyone will know this king, the true king, the good king, the perfectly just and infinitely loving king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised one. He's the true king. Finally, Jesus is the great rescuer. Jesus is the great rescuer. As I've mentioned several times already, Jesus is referred to not only as the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. God's covenant with the Jewish people had first been made through Abraham. This is recorded all the way back in Genesis. You'll find it in chapter 12, again in chapter 17, and a third time in chapter 22. In fact, listen to the aspect of this Abrahamic covenant that's emphasized in Genesis 21, verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Friends, Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, came in fulfillment of the kingdom promised to David and the nation blessing promised to Abraham. Through Jesus, through Jesus, all the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the one who God promised. He is the one who has come to rescue his people. But do you remember the angelic announcement? It's not in Matthew's gospel, it's in Luke's gospel. But what did the angel announce when Jesus arrived as a baby? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The good news of great joy is that the great rescuer has come to lay down his life for the salvation of his people. And his people... Those he has come to rescue will not be limited to one ethnic people group. It's good news for all people. The offer is for all people. You see, it's the reality that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the great rescuer. It is this reality that stands behind the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. So turn there with me, Matthew chapter 28. Most of you can quote these verses. Look at verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, another statement of his identity. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, this may be obvious to you, but let me, let me connect the dots for you. Think about this. God's promise to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The angel's announcement of Jesus' birth. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
Jesus' own commission to us. Redeemer, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then, where's all of this headed? Well, it's all leading to the heavenly scene recorded in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation, rescue belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The promise has been and is being fulfilled Jesus is rescuing a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he can do that because he is who he claimed to be. Jesus is the promised one. He is the true king. He is the great rescuer. And you might say, so why does this matter? There are a thousand ways to answer that question. But let me just answer it one way. Why did Matthew emphasize this? And why do we now need to know who Jesus is? To answer that, let me offer you a story. Like a lot of young men who grew up in Minnesota and throughout the Midwest, in the 1950s and 1960s, my dad was a wrestler. He loved it, and he still does. Well, when the Lord gave my dad four boys, it was only natural for him to start teaching us how to wrestle from a very young age. As I was growing up, my dad was a teacher and a wrestling coach. I remember one instance when I was probably in fifth or sixth grade, and my dad was taking us to a special wrestling camp It was a one-day camp with special instructors, and there were probably a couple hundred boys there, ranging from elementary age all the way up through high school. As we all arrived and gathered on the wrestling mat to be welcomed by the main instructor, everyone was wound up, ready to wrestle. And it it was obvious that it was going to be very difficult to get everyone's attention. Well, the main instructor welcomed all the gathered wrestlers, and as he introduced himself, he was trying to speak over all the noise. But as he was doing this, he, he pulled out a small box. And when he opened the box, what we saw was an Olympic gold medal. It was the gold medal that he had won in the 1972 Olympics in Munich, Germany. Do you know that at that point, everyone was silent? 
And for the rest of the day, every boy there listened with reverence and awe to every word he said. Why? Because once we realized who he was, it only made sense that we would listen to everything he said. Friends, this is what is happening in Matthew's gospel. Before Matthew shares Jesus' lengthiest recorded sermon, he establishes who he is. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then we would be foolish to do anything other than listen with a sense of reverence and awe to every word he says. So that's our plan, to listen to Jesus and to respond in worship and obedience. Jesus is the promised one, the true king, the great rescuer. What he says matters. Let's pray.